and welcome to uh, this year's first episode of the Sobre Mesa podcast. It's 2022 and uh, we're kicking off the year with one of our favourite topics, which is Catalonia. Uh, often Catalonia is compared with Scotland um, and I think a lot of people actually get a bit bored of that comparison. Um, so today my guest, Carlo Basta, who is ironically based in Scotland at the moment, uh, who is a lecturer of politics and international relations at Edinburgh University, uh, is here to talk to me about his uh, new book out, The Symbolic State, which came out in November 2021 on McGill Queen's University pr uh, Publishing Press. So welcome to Sobre Mesa, Carlo. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Nice, no, brilliant. Thanks for coming. So, Carlo, could you just explain to us... Um, you know, what you set out to answer in this book and, and how did you go about it? Right, so uh, the, the central question is fairly straightforward and simple. It's one that's been asked, I think, over and over again about uh, uh, multinational states. So that's the focus. It's basically why people mobilize for independence en masse in multinational states. And I look at this process in four countries, uh, Spain, uh, Canada, former Czechoslovakia and former Yugoslavia. Um, and the question, I think, I, I guess it kind of sounds trivial, uh, but it isn't um, in part because these movements, right? Movements for independence take a very, very long time to come about, um, decades in many cases. So it's by no means obvious why a population that is generally okay uh, living in a particular state at some point says to hell with it and then decides to go in another direction. Right? So that was the basic kind of framing, uh, framing question. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of why those particular cases, those four, um, it, it, the, the first thing to note is my starting point was quite different from where the book ended up being. So I started working on this about um, I would say, what is it, 16 now, 17 years ago, and it was wow. part of my doctoral dissertation. And um, I do want to emphasize that the starting point is very, very far from where I actually ended up. Yeah, so I yeah. originally, you know, it's how these things kind of go, right? So originally, <laughs> I simply wanted to explain why some governments in, in multinational states like Spain or Canada or others, why some of these governments are more likely than others to grant more fiscal or economic autonomy to minority regions like Catalonia, like Quebec, like Scotland, right? Uh -huh. um, so this wasn't where I landed, but it was the starting point. And, and my hunch was that uh, accommodation uh, along these kind of economic and fiscal lines uh, is more likely to happen if both sets of governments, right? So both the regional government and the central government, if they both pursue similar economic models, right? right. So if either they both embrace the market and want to minimize the role of the state, or if they focus on state-driven development and things of that nature, right? So if both governments do this, my hunch was that accommodation, more autonomy for minority regions is gonna be more likely um, but if the central government does one thing, but the regional government does another, so let's say central government is more kind of pro-market and the regional government is more kind of state interventionist, then there's going to be a clash and autonomy is less likely to occur. And because of this kind of model, I needed four, four countries that would correspond to four configurations, right? Like status, status, market, market, and then either uh, on either end. And I ended up with four countries. Uh, each with one of these configurations. So this is this is why it was Canada, Spain, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, right? But the project ended up going far beyond these these economic and fiscal considerations. Mm. 
And and in the book you talk about, uh, well, Spain, obviously you said, is one of your examples. Can you summarise what is round one and round two uh, and, and their significance? Right. So it, it, very briefly, I think it was a way for me to try to make sense of what are normally very lengthy processes of claims, counterclaims and accommodations. And so basically, I started with the following premise, uh, and it's really the starting point of the book, um, which is that when representatives of minority nations, so again, Catalans, Basques, Quebecois, Scots, or beyond, right, when they when they make their claim for for more self government within the confines of, of the state that they find themselves in, they're doing two things, right? So the first thing that they're doing is they're asking for more powers and resources in order to be able to do other things, right? So in order to facilitate faster economic development, or in order to protect their cultural language, or in order to kind of chart a different social policy model, right? Um, and so I call this, this dimension of autonomy instrumental, right? We want X because it helps us get Y, right? And when outsiders look at these kinds of, you know, claims and counterclaims, they mostly see this instrumental bit, right? So why do minority nations want autonomy? They want it because they want to do something with it, right? Uh -huh. But there's the second aspect of these claims. And to my mind, uh, that aspect is actually more important it's in order to explain these big outcomes like mobilization for independence. So when leaders of these minority nations or their political elites ask for more self-government, they're not only asking for, you know, more I don't know, resources or more policy-making autonomy, they're also asking to be recognized as a distinct nation within the common state. Mm -hmm. And they're also asking the government of that state to acknowledge that the state itself is, is not a nation state, right? That it's a multinational one. So in other words, you know, when, when the Catalan political elites as far back as 1978 in the constitutional de debates, when they were asking for, you know, the, the reestablishment of the Generalitat and all of that, they were not only asking for more powers, but they were also asking their Spanish counterparts to, to acknowledge that Spain is a multinational reality, right? So it's not just a state of a single unified Spanish nation, but that mm -hmm. there's multiple nations uh, there, right? Uh, and so this, this, this claim for recognition, the symbolic claim, as they call it, so the symbolic dimension of institutions is, is quite important as well um, and can be, I guess, accommodated through a variety of ways, either through some sort of asymmetry, like some sort of asymmetric territorial autonomy or some sort of recognition in the constitution or quasi-constitutional documents that the community in question does form a nation, right? So Catalan is our nation, whether or not, right? Um, and so this part, the symbolic bit is, is normally dismissed by outside observers if it's if it's seen or perceived at all. So there's these two, like the instrumental and then the symbolic bit, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, so, and I know this is a very, very kind of long answer to the question, but, but the reason that I have this round one and round two is because the central governments respond to these demands over long periods of time and in different ways. Uh -huh. And so in the early going, which is the round one bit, right? Like yeah. um, they, they tend, to, the central governments tend to do more on the instrumental side. So they give a little bit more in terms of resources or some more legislative competencies or whatever, regional police, healthcare, language, uh -huh. immigration, and things of that nature, right? Uh, but they, in the early going, they, they tend to ignore the symbolic bit, right? Right. And what's interesting is that this kind of played fairly similarly on all four of my cases that I look at, right? Right, okay. Uh, but this is not where the claims end by the minority nations, right? Because yeah. 
again, they're never only about the instrumental bits anyway. They want more than that. So what you see happening over, say, decade or two decades is a kind of restatement of these demands. So the minority nations generally go, okay, well, this is a good opening bid, but we still want to be recognized as a nation. So what can you give us? And this leads to round two, where the central government basically, after, after a, a process of kind of piecemeal accommodation and, and granting of these instrumental bits and pieces, uh, ends up yielding to new instrumental and symbolic demands. And, and this is where the, the situation is completely transformed, basically. Right. So it goes so from sort of material, material wants, uh, effectively, like police and, and, you know, jurisdiction over healthcare and stuff, to more sort of abstract idealist notions. I suppose, like, with Catalonia, I don't know, the, the most recent one was, that, you know, they want a certain percentage of Netflix uh, content to be made in Catalan. I mean, that's a complete world away from, uh, from managing your own police force, right? Obviously, right. it's symbolic it, right. as well. Yeah, exactly. So there is, I'd say there is a material component to it, but I would say that, that it's not just a material. Again, it's no. instrumental. So you can argue that, you know, uh, getting X percent of it in, in Catalan is in some sense instrumental as well, because you can make the claim that, well, this is one of the ways in which you foster or preserve the language, right? Okay, yeah. But yeah. It, there is in that also that, that kind of symbolic, well, kind of recognizes, right? It's not yeah, just yeah, because yeah. we want the preservation of language, because we can do that through our education and language policy. Uh-huh. But also, you know, we want this stamp that says, you know, Catalans exist as a, as a distinct kind of, you know, yeah. political reality. So absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. There's, there's that kind of dimension to it, right? But, and this is very important, once the central government actually goes in the direction of, of let's say, more far-reaching beyond, let's say, Netflix, right? If they want to do something constitutional, something fairly big, Right, where they want to acknowledge uh, um, this kind of multinational reality, um, it basically undercuts the fundamental part of the majority story, right? So in other words, the way in which people outside of Catalonia or outside of Quebec or outside of Scotland see themselves. Yeah. Um, and um, it, it basically, the symbolic recognition of minority nationhood um, it disturbs the self-image that many on the majority side have of themselves. And yeah, here yeah. you have a very, very different kind of politics that starts to materialize. There's a qualitative yeah. change because this symbolic recognition essentially fosters resentment amongst majorities. Uh-huh. And, the, and then it creates the conditions for open political backlash against the minority recognition and makes it very likely that any concessions that were attempted or passed would be reversed. And it's when this happens, in other words, when, when the concessions, those, those kind of symbolic kind of concessions to minorities, when these things are reversed, this really pushes the support for independence much higher. And, and it happened in three of the four cases that I consider here. So in Spain, but yeah. also in Canada and in Formula. Yeah, around the time of the Scottish independence uh, referendum, there was a lot of English people saying, uh, if they want to go, let them go. Like... I'm not bothered. And it wouldn't surprise me as well if, you know, it's, 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 I know parts of Scotland and parts of Wales voted leave in the Brexit referendum. Well, I think the majority in, in Wales did, but majority of England voted to leave, right? Europe. And I, I'm surprised, like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised that it, it probably has some sort of connection to do with Scotland, maybe. Uh, I'm sure if it was a referendum on do you want England to leave the United Kingdom, they probably would have voted leave. I'm not sure, but... That's a hypothetical reality, but yeah, yeah, but um, 
but no, I can t- and and I suppose in the context of Spain, right? It's it's the it's Vox. I mean, there was mm. uh, videos of people in Andalusia shouting at the police that were going to stop the referendum, go and get them, go and get them. Um, like, and there is like a, I, I think a lot of Spanish people play it down, but there is quite a strong um, anti-Catalan rhetoric. Uh, certainly here in Madrid, I know that it's more specific here in Madrid because there's always been that rivalry, but I think it's over other parts of Spain as well. I'm not sure, but, and it normally comes out as a joke. But uh, you know, oh, I'm just joking. But but there is an element of of resentment. I don't know what what you would call it. But no, I completely see your theory. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a kind of but but here's the here's the thing. There there's a difference between their existing resentment and then that resentment being politicized against a particular project. Yeah. Right? yeah. So that's kind of what I'm looking at because so what I what I saw in. To, you know, to use the example of Spain, to go back to Spain, right? So there were things that Catalonia was was gaining in the 1980s, 1990s, and there was there was some resentment at this, but it didn't really take the form of open political mobilization. And it was yeah. really that moment in in uh, 2000, essentially 2004 to 2006, when the statute uh, of, uh, uh, of of autonomy yeah, uh, yeah for catalonia was being revised and and the key element of, of that particular statute was this recognition of catalonia as a nation right uh-huh. and it was this bit that proved to be really really combustible uh because it provided uh the partido popular which was in opposition there with this thing to to, to beat up the PSOE, right which, yeah. which seemed to be willing to kind of at least to some degree accept this right so uh-huh. PSOE itself actually moved move that that kind of recognition of, of Catalan nationhood from the body of the statute to the preamble, but it remained there, right? Uh-huh. And then what Partido Popular did at that particular point was it was mobilizing, it was trying to get all of these regional parliaments to pass resolutions against it. It was collecting signatures. I don't know if you recall this, but they, were, they collected yeah. something in the order of 4 million signatures Spain-wide. I mean, it was a pub- publicity stunt, but it was yeah. a highly visible publicity stunt and 4 million uh-huh. people were willing to sign this. I mean, you know, it kind of plays in a particular way in, in, yeah. in, in Catalonia. And then finally, of course, they, they challenged the, the constitutionality of the, of the statute in the constitutional court. And this is something that was, I think, a critical kind of point when that decision came down in 2010. So you have this kind of resentment was one thing, but open political mobilization against, let's say in this case, the statute of autonomy and, and this notion of nationhood there. Uh, I think this was this mobilization, open mobilization, well beyond just resentment, was something that I think created the conditions for the rise of uh, uh, pro-independence uh, kind of sentiment in, in, in Catalonia uh-huh. past 2010, 2011, 2012, of course, beyond into 2017. And you can argue, I mean, this is something that happened in Canada as well. The UK is different, I think, in, in, in some ways, but we can talk about that. Yeah, no, I mean... Um, uh, my next one. My next question was why why Catalonia not the Basque country in your book? Mm. And that's a, that's a perfectly legit question if, if you look at it in isolation. But if you look at it in comparison, what I was trying to do was yeah, essentially yeah. right because it's, it's these four countries. So yeah. I was trying to basically look at the way in which central government reacted or responded to the demands of the of the largest minority nation right uh-huh, so okay. in, in the case of i guess in the case of czechoslovakia you only have one minority nation the slovaks and that was easy right but in the case of spain it's different because you have the catalans you have the basques you have the Lysians, et etc right uh-huh. um but but catalonia 
seem to kind of beckon as as the as the as the most kind of important one in a sense, uh, not because others are unimportant, but because of its relative economic weight and of course its political weight, right? Right. Yeah. So so it's 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 kind of the comp- the comparison essentially that dictated that particular choice. Right. Okay. But there's also something to be said, like if you look at the way in which the fiscal arrangements in Spain work, right? Um, the fact that the Basque country and Navarra actually have their own concierto economico, right? So a very yeah. different kind of set of fiscal arrangements and they get to keep most of the money that they raise. Uh, I mean, of course, there's historic and legal reasons for this, but, but I think also the political reason is that the Basque country and Navarra are, are, are small enough where the Spanish government was able to kind of do without those resources. Yeah. But I, when I was talking to politicians it, doing this research, uh, and, and people who were involved in the uh, in the process of statutory reform in Catalonia, I mean, the understanding was, you know, if the Spanish government did something like this for for Catalonia, the the hole in their budget would be far far too big, right? Mm-hmm. So, in, in that sense, you have this kind of political and fiscal weight of of Catalonia and the Spanish yeah. context, which which kind of dictated that I should look at it. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and in the book, you you compare these four countries, and I suppose, well, it seems to me that that Spain and Catalonia are on are on the well, are on their journey of what you've been describing the, your theory, the theory that you've been exploring uh, and obviously Vox have been around what now three or four years something like that I suppose that's the backlash that you were, t- were talking about and um, how did this play out in other countries uh, what similarities did you find with Spain and Catalonia with Canada and the other countries that you were exploring so there's some kind of baseline similarities in all four. I mean, all four of these, and that's what, that's another reason I'm comparing these four and not, let's say, you know, uh, including others. Um, yeah. Uh, so all four, uh, you know, kind of face these long-standing claims by at least one significant part of their population for greater self-government, right? And normally uh-huh. these claims were, were claims, non-secessionist claims, you know, uh, so there were claims for greater autonomy, greater recognition, all these kinds of things. And they're, again, remarkably similar because in all four of them, you see the same kind of pattern. It's okay, Slovaks, Croats and Slovenes in, in Yugoslavia, uh, uh, Quebecers in, in Canada, and then you have a sim- similar kind of pattern in, in Spain with particularly with the Catalans and the Basques. Galicians to a certain extent, obviously, there's the, the Andalusian, bit as well and some uh-huh. of the others in Spain. But but the claim was both, well, you know, we we need more resources and more levers of power in order to be able to do what we need to do. So give us more fiscal autonomy, give us more, you know, uh, um, autonomy over particular policy um, uh, levers. Uh, but there was also this constant refrain about recognition, you know, um, which was, it, it, this is not only about material stuff, as you called it, right? Or, yeah. or instrumental bits, right? It's also about us as a distinctive community within Spain, within Canada, within Yugoslavia. Um, and uh, please recognize that we are one and recognize this reality that Canada is not a, a state of this unified, if diverse, Canadian nation, but that it is a binational reality for Quebecers. Of course, there's also the issue of First Nations in Canada. Uh, so that's the difference, but the similarity is, is there. Uh-huh. And obviously in Spain, um, there was this claim for, again, like if you look at the, the, the constitutional debates in 1978, every single representative, um, uh, parliamentary representative coming from Catalonia, regardless of their, of their uh, political background and political party, was basically making the same claim, which was, 
you know, Spain is a multinational state and let's see how we can kind of accommodate this. And so all of the demands made by, by the Catalan politicians in 1978 in these, these constitutional debates uh, went far beyond what people on the other side, right? Their, their counterparts in, in the rest of Spain were willing to, willing to kind of accede to, right? Uh -huh. um, and so, so the claims were quite similar, right? And in all four, uh, the majority population sort of reacted in, in similar ways during those, those two rounds, round one and round two, right? Um, they were suspicious and apprehensive about the, the instrumental concessions, but weren't mobilizing against it, right? But once, once uh, the symbolic concessions were made, um, you, you had a far more explosive kind of political mobilization. So in Canada, for example, in Quebec, Quebec was kind of expanding its, its, its room for autonomy in the 1960s, 1970s, quite uh -huh. substantially. There were real, real, uh, uh, you know, concessions to Quebec. For example, it developed its own pension plan that allowed it to chart its own um, kind of industrial policy. Basically, it allowed it to borrow, nationalize its industries, et cetera, et cetera, and create this entire, basically, uh, um, you know, uh, a property class out of out of these resources. It also right. had control over its own uh, immigration policy, wow. and so yeah, there was there was kind of apprehension in the rest of Canada about this, but you didn't really see this kind of broad-based political mobilization against the the you know the the Quebec project of self-government. But in the 1980s, when when the federal government basically started to talk about constitutional reform. And this notion of recognizing constitutionally Quebec as a, a distinct um, uh, society, which was the equivalent of recognition of, of you know, Quebec as a nation. Yeah. Um, it was this that really actually created a political backlash, right, from all kinds of quarters. And so once this, this attempt to recognize Quebec as a distinct society created this backlash, the backlash essentially fed back into a reversal of the position. So it was a failed attempt to accommodate Quebec. And it was then that you have this real spike and, and real kind of taking off of support for independence, sovereignty association, but also independence in Quebec to beyond 50% in the early 1990s, uh -huh. leading to the 1995 referendum that was far closer than the one in 1980, the first, the first yeah. referendum that Quebec had. So there's, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of similarity there because in, mm. in Catalonia, again, you have this kind of mobilization, give us more autonomy, et cetera, et cetera. There's really no, no real open political backlash in the 1980s and 1990s. I mean, there is, there are attempts in, in not attempts only, but actual reversals uh, in, um, uh, uh, on behalf of the Spanish government, but these reversals take place normally through through either uh, legislation or, or court decisions, right? So there's a right. lot of kind of court games playing out, but there's no political backlash, like yeah, mobilization, yeah. political mobilization along the lines that you see around 2005, 2006 and beyond. And then especially, as you mentioned, after 2017, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's a similarity there as well. So, so these are, I'd say Canada and, and Spain in particular are similar, although there are some baseline similarities with the other, with the other two cases uh, as well. And, and what, uh, what conclusions did you draw from your, from your studies? And, and, and I don't, well, I know, I don't know, I like asking anyone to be a fortune teller, but you know, what would your theory say would be next for Spain and Catalonia as well? Mm -hmm. I mean, so I'll take the first one, if you don't mind, because that's the one yeah. that, that is the most speculative, right? Like, and, and, and again, not a grain of salt, but a bag of salt, right? 
I mean, look, it, it seems to me, and that's not, so the book doesn't really explain the outcomes of, of these kinds of secessionist crises, because obviously they went in different directions. So Yugoslavia yeah. actually broke up in Canada and Spain, it didn't really happen. Uh, look, my hunch uh, for Spain is, and, and you, you, know, you probably, I'm not, you probably certainly know this better than me because I've been, I've been refocusing my, my sights on, on the UK for the past several years. Already. And, and, and took my eye off of Spain for, for a while in Catalonia. But I mean, you know, you, you saw what happened in 2017. Um, the the central government mounted fairly serious resistance, and and uh, the independence movement found itself at an impasse. Um, where at that particular point, I think there were quite a few people that wanted to kind of back down, and and reconsider, regroup. Um, but it was difficult to do because of the configuration of political forces in Catalonia, right? So you have far too many you know, parties vying for power. So anybody <laughs> yeah. kind of pulling back risks being called a you know traitor to the national cause or something like that, right? So, uh, but it's clear that those 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 kinds of processes started to happen with Esquerra becoming the more, I mean, ironically, I guess, becoming the more kind of moderate force. Yeah. Uh, and especially, I think, with the pandemic, basically, the pandemic gives a very good reason to anybody who's more moderate or, or wants to kind of pull back and de-escalate the situation to do so, right? Yeah. So I would say for the time being, uh, it, it, what, what, what this last decade basically did was to harden, uh, first of all, to escalate and to harden support for independence at around whatever, 40%, right? 40, 45%, give or take. But I, I don't think given the configuration of power and political culture in Madrid, and of course, the constitutional reality, but that can be changed if you have political will. I, I, I just see it as being more of, of a status quo and sort yeah. of political churn in, in, the, in, in the discourse in Catalonia, right? Uh -huh. but, but not much by way of, I, I can't see a renewed attempt to do what, you know, something along the lines of, of 2017, because no. I don't think anybody actually wanted what happened in 2017. I think it was that competition between the various political parties and the role of the of the pro-independence civil society uh, that that produced that that outcome, obviously, you know, in combination with with what was coming from Madrid. But I think the political dynamic inside of Catalonia basically lent itself to that. But 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 I don't think any and you kind of see the outcome of that. The fact that so many yeah. people ended up in prison and exiled. I don't you know had had they known that that's where it was going to go. I don't think they would have they would have made mm. that step. So I. In other words, I think there's going to be kind of a re-equilibration re of the model. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind so of similar to what happens in, has happened in Quebec, right? I mean, what was the backlash like in Quebec and, and what happened after that? That's would be quite interesting. Right. So, I mean, it, it, Quebec was different in the sense that, you know, Quebec actually held a referendum twice. Um, yeah. And, and the central government basically did not try to prevent it, obviously, right? Uh, it was a higher threshold, right? If I remember rightly, it was it was like wasn't fifty percent. It was high. I can't remember. But. No, no, no. So, so I mean, so so the threshold was fifty percent, but that was that was part of the what 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 the federal government of Canada perceived as a problem because they basically said, well, hang on a second. I mean, you know, first of all, fifty percent plus one is that sufficient? Which I mean, I'm agnostic when it comes to that question. Why not 50% plus one? Where do you put 55, 67? Yeah, you know, yeah. like it's, it's one of those things, right? So it's not an easy answer for that. But what um, what the Canadian government did was basically sought uh, a, 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 an opinion from the uh, Supreme Court of Canada 
and then passed a law that essentially, uh, you know, uh, this Clarity Bill or Clarity Act that basically sets these these limits on what what uh, has to happen next time there is if there is a referendum, which is that there needs to be a clear question and a clear majority, right? Right. And and ironically, the Clarity Act actually does not define what a clear majority actually is. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but the, the clear question bit relates to the fact that the, the, the question in 1995 referendum was quite lengthy and it, it wasn't right. particularly intuitive, right? It was very different from the Scottish question in 2014, which is, you know, do you think Scotland should be an independent country? Yes or no? This wasn't how it was in, in, in Quebec, right? It was a lengthy question. You can check it out. Uh, and, your, and your listeners as well. Uh, but uh, so in that sense, they kind of raised the bar. The, the federal government raised the bar. They didn't say you can't do it. You can run a referendum. Right, but in order okay. for it to, you know, to, to result in something political, these are the criteria. Right. But even with that, the federal government does not commit itself to simply saying, okay, well, now you have your majority, you can go. No, this, this um, places the onus on the, the rest of Canada and the rest of Canada's political forces to negotiate in good faith. Uh-huh. But it's again far far less definitive or decisive than what was happening in Scotland in 2014. So in that right. sense, it was different. So there was a referendum. There was no repression uh, or, or suppression of the vote as as there was in Catalonia in 2017. Um, and I think, you know, it, it basically, given that there were these two attempts and, and neither succeeded in, in bringing about a pro-independence majority in Quebec, I think over time, basically, and with generational change, right, it, it just kind of dissipated this, this kind right. of thing, right? But there's also something to be said for the fact that the, that the Canadian federal elites being burned by this attempt in the 1980s to, to recognize Quebec through constitutional reform, basically just said, hell no to any subsequent constitutional, mega-constitutional changes, they called it, right? So they haven't touched that that third rail of constitutional politics for now three decades, right? Wow. And I think that's in part a, a very deliberate, uh, a deliberate kind of strategy because they understand that once you start doing that, that's where the danger actually comes, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a, that. So that's the speculative bit. But you asked me about, you know, the the, the book and what 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 uh, you know what conclusions I, I had. I mean, there's a couple of things that I want to kind of foreground. Two basically take home points, right? The first is that mobilization for independence, and you get that from the from the conversation we've had now. The mobilization for independence doesn't just come out of nowhere, right? It isn't a logical consequence just of a minority nation having territorial autonomy, right? And that is this kind of slippery slope argument that you can see in a lot of the literature. And I think people, like lay people, when they think about these things, go, "Oh, okay. Well, you know, if you if you give a particular you know national group its own government, police forces, etc., 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 it makes it almost inevitable that that there's going to be some sort of independence movement and ultimately breakup of the country. And I don't think that's the case at all, right? So here I basically show that you can't just look at that. You have to look at both sides and the interaction right. of kind of minority nationalism and majority nationalism, because it's really the self-images of the two sides yeah. uh, and, and their interaction and this backlash, I would say, particularly the majority backlash that, that, um, that makes it more likely that you're going to have that mobilization for independence. So that's the first point. And the second one, which is linked to it, and I think it's, it's the more important, is that the big outcomes like secessionist mobilization, potential state breakup, and all of that, it, it, that this is not really about instrumental or those material aspects of, of, of the situation, right? It's not about resources, power, and such. I mean, it is for politicians themselves, right? Yeah. 
but it's but the big like the 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 big outcomes where where masses of population actually get mobilized on both sides, both among majorities and minorities. This really is about symbolic, uh, intangible aspects, right? People don't get riled up about the fiscal redistribution formula, right, or about framework laws, or or, or, yeah. or even about how poorly their regional rail runs. You know, to to use the Catalan example, these are things. You know, these things are they're important, but they're you know they're too complex or they're too they, they affect only a small segment of, of the regional population, mm. or they're not emotionally evocative enough to, yeah. to get upset about, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think people do get upset if, if somebody tells them that the entire idea of their collective identity is wrong or illegitimate, right? And that's true, and this is key, that's true for both minorities and majors, right? So that's yeah. the un underappreciated bit of it that my book foregrounds. So it's not just the minorities and misrecognition of minorities that's, that, that can lead to mobilization, but it's also the misrecognition of majority self-image that can lead yeah. to mobilization. And it's this interaction really that I look at. Wow. It's very dialectical, right? It's a very dialectical movement. It's, Absolutely. it's fascinating, fascinating. Uh, well, thank you very much, Carlo, for joining me on Florida Mesa. Thank you very much for having me here. It was a pleasure.